The following episode contains extremely graphic material. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of The Miscreants, a double murder rocks Reno, Nevada. Well, I remember an officer being there, and I remember walking in there and I said, oh my God. And I see um, Peggy, she's hogtied, she's got tape around the mouth, she's got a crowbar sticking out of her skull. Pretty yeah. gory. And it's a crime scene unlike anything you've heard before. What I saw at the scene told me that the person that died last had to live through hell. Knowing and feeling and seeing and smelling what was occurring and that they were next and there wasn't a damn thing they could do to stop it. It is to this day uh, the worst team I've ever seen. Welcome to episode two of The Miscreants. I'm Melissa McCarty. And I'm Kelly McClear. In the previous episode, you learned about the lives of Alvaro Calambro and Duck Wynn and what started their miscreant ways. Living in Reno, Nevada, they struggled to make ends meet, got involved with local gangs running a series of rental car thefts, and Duck got fired from his job at the local U-Haul rental facility in late 1993. What prompted the firing was that Duck had a falling out with his boss, Peggy Crawford, and over the course of the next few months, a vendetta began to brew. It was there, at the very same U-Haul facility, that the tale of the miscreants takes a dramatic and horrific turn. On January 3rd of 1994, Peggy Crawford and Keith Christopher went to work like any other day. Only they didn't know it would be their last day alive. Peggy was a long-standing and respected U-Haul employee. Keith Christopher was new to the job, as David Stanton, the chief deputy district attorney in Nevada at the time, remembers. He was in a manager in training, and it was his first day at that store. And he was walking around with Peggy, uh, learning what to do as a manager. You know, I, I went to dinner this week at a restaurant, and there were, you know, those times when you go in and there's a waiter, and then there's a waiter in training. That's kind of what Keith was. He was following around Peggy on how to be a manager of a U-Haul store. Never worked there was not uh, an employee, let alone a manager, at that U-Haul store in Reno. On the morning of January 4th, a fellow U-Haul employee would make a startling discovery. The case officially came to the police department by a 911 call from a U-Haul representative. Um, I believe he was a regional manager from U-Haul. The murders took place on Sunday. The next following day on Monday, uh, he had been attempting to get hold of Peggy, was unable to do that, thought it was highly unusual because Peggy was very um, systematic in her approach to the job, always there on time, uh, always available. He thought that it was unusual, uh, decided to go to the store, and as he pulled into the back lot behind the store, there's a rear exit. Um, there's a small parking lot, a gated parking lot back there, and he finds it unusual that when he pulls in that he sees Peggy and Keith's car there because he did not anticipate it 
them being there because either the store wasn't open yet or they weren't scheduled to open it. But I remember the first thing that he told me that he knew, obviously in retrospect, what unusual was that their cars were still there, both of them. And he opens the rear door uh, with his key. He comes in. He knew what he was seeing because anybody could, you know, grasp that, although it was so shocking that you would probably at least initially kind of reject what you were seeing because you couldn't believe it. He then calls 911. And that's the first time police are notified is by the regional manager coming in Monday morning and then calling 911. We've obtained never-before-released transcripts of this case, including the 911 call. The actual audio recording doesn't exist anymore, but this is a reenactment taken directly from the 911 call transcripts of what the manager found the morning of January 4th, 1994. Uh, I need I need the police. Where do you need them, sir? Um, I'm the general manager of U-Haul, three four one one South Virginia. Okay, at U-Haul. Okay. Um, I, I, I just came in the store, and my um, my night two people have been tied up and killed. All right, sir. Um, you let me put you through to Remsa, and then I want you to stay on the line with me. Okay. Okay. We got a homicide. At 3411 South Virginia, I'm putting you through to Remsa. I'll get the rest of the information. Paramedics, where do you need an ambulance? 3411 South Virginia. That's a bad job. This is at U-Haul. We've had two night people tied up and uh, homicide, and I'll get Remsa and fire. I, I mean, I'll, I'll get fire and PD. Okay, sir, stay with me just a minute. When I got a phone call on the way to work one day on the date of the U-Haul murders, and the person on the other end said, you've got to come look at this, you're not going to believe it. And it was an odd comment. Um, I've certainly uh, seen and been to uh, a large number of violent death scenes, and when I got to the U-Haul on South Virginia Street in, in Reno, Nevada, um, I saw a scene like I've never seen before or since. U-Haul was right off South Virginia Street. And as you turn in, there's a parking lot, there's hand trucks and all the stuff that you normally, and you know, the U-Haul trucks of different sizes all out there and you know, kind of a medium sized parking lot. And then there's the building itself with some bays that you can pull vehicles in to put on hitches and that's sort of thing. But the interesting thing, you know, just logistically is there's a chain link fence right next to the sidewalk uh, that abuts Virginia Street. So the gate to lock the front, the main entrance into U-Haul is right next to Virginia Street. And the gate is on a wheel, on a roller that you slide across. So Peggy and Keith going through the final stages of that business day uh, on Sunday walk out together, they lock, roll the gate shut, they put the chain on it, put it the lock, and Duck and Alvera tell us that they have now gone through the, the back parking lot, parked their car, and they have a gun, 
and they are standing at the corner of the building. The front door is kind of in the middle of the building, and they're watching Peggy and Keith lock the gate, walk through the parking lot, and going through the front door, and that's when they enter the store. What I'm about to describe to you uh, is one of those cases where I will still think about to this day about what she went through, and it's haunting. And I walked in, saw the detectives there, and when they said, follow me, because you, a crime scene like this, there's a certain area that you can walk in so that you do not um, spoil or affect any of the trace evidence that they're still in processing and would be in this case for days to come. And they lead me to the counter, the cash register counter inside the store. And I turned and looked down the counter and I remember I sat there silent. No one said a word. People are working silently, taking photographs, processing areas for fingerprints and DNA. And I remember I sat there um, most of the time. It ultimately was probably 20 to 30 minutes uh, by myself and sometimes other detectives walking up next to me, just looking at what I was seeing and trying to piece together in my mind what I was looking at. But the most compelling thing about it was what I knew about forensic evidence that I could tell in that initial half an hour and the seven or so hours I spent at that scene that day um, of what it told me, of what it told me about how Keith and Peggy died. And it's just not me looking at it. It's a healthy way, in my opinion, of a scene, any homicide scene, is the people that are working it, hopefully the, the best and the brightest in law enforcement and experienced folks in the prosecution end, talking about it, walking through it. What about this? What do you make of this? Do you think this could have happened? And that happened there. But in the first half an hour, uh, nothing was said. And it, it the scene itself and the, and the graphic nature of what I'm going to describe to you about what I physically saw, but the most compelling thing is what it meant to me. Um, it was a classic scene. It wasn't one of those scenes where you had to piece things together or that you had to wait for DNA or fingerprints to come back. It was there in vivid three-dimensional um, right in front of you. And ultimately, I can't say that this was my first thoughts, but ultimately, one of the most compelling things, then and even now, there are nights when I wake up uh, and I think about this. It was obvious to me that I didn't even know their names at that time, but Peggy and Keith, that one died first. One physically had to be killed first and I just, I remember the tingling in my face thinking what, because what I saw at the scene told me that the person that died last had to live through hell. Knowing and feeling and seeing and smelling what was occurring and that they were next 
and there wasn't a damn thing they could do to stop it. And that was, you know, just horrific. Just one of the most, and is to this day, uh, the worst scene I've ever seen. It sounds like 20 plus years later, it still bothers you. It's still, it stayed with you all these years. Yeah, it does. It does in the light of how horrific Peggy's death was. What you are about to hear is a very graphic description of the crime scene and the murders of Peggy Crawford and Keith Christopher by then Deputy District Attorney David Stanton. Again, listener discretion is advised. Can you describe for us the crime scene? Yeah, so... The first thing that I, uh, not the first thing, but what I notice behind the counter is there's not enough room for two people to have killed Peggy and Keith at the same time. Once again, they're not shot. They're not stabbed. And so to physically take their life based upon what what the detectives and I are seeing at the scene is uh, it's not a weapon in the traditional sense that we see in murders. It's a confined area. And right above them, there is acoustic tile in the ceiling uh, in the counter area at the U-Haul business. And on the ceiling, you see what what commonly referred to in the forensic circle is cast-off. Cast-off, a simple explanation of it is, and I'll use it as it relates to the tools involved in this case, that a ball-peen hammer was used to kill Keith Christopher and that he struck um, at least 10, I think maybe 13 times. Uh, And so the first blow cuts the skin, crushes bone, and it begins to bleed and bleed significantly. That blood is transferred to the head of the ball-peen hammer on the first blow. It happens very quickly, um, and as that hammer is brought back to swing for the second blow, the blood and the other material that's now collecting on the head of the hammer is then cast off in an arc onto another surface. In this particular case, it's on the ceiling. And then when you look at the dynamics of what's behind the counter, you can see from where the blows on Keith's head were inflicted and where the cast-off was that it was in a particular position that the killer had been raining this ball-peen hammer down on his skull and then that it was repeated. Uh, So you can count the strokes, if you will, or the arcs that were on the ceiling and on the walls as this material is being cast off. And as the blows rain down, the skull is crushed. Now you have a mixture of both bone, tissue, hair, blood, and then ultimately brain matter. And when you have destroyed a skull such as that, the final blows is you have a massive amount now of, ma- of those items that I just described being cast off in the area around his body. And you can see that 
very clearly uh, by the color, uh, by the whiteness of the walls, the whiteness of the acoustic panel. And it's important, very important in the investigation, the number of blows. And once again, to ascertain, are you talking about physically killing now? One people, two people, more than that. And it was clear to me, I can't speak for anybody else, but it was clear to me that it was one person uh, doing that as it relates to Key. Peggy's injuries were different. She only had one injury, uh, fatal as it was. Um, She had, um, some people would refer to it as a crowbar, but it's not. I think it's more aptly described as a pry bar. It has one end that is kind of a crowbar, not the sharp curved section, but the flat blade section. The other end is a direct steel pointed tip, and it's used to align things, and it was used at the U-Haul to align hitches that were installed on trucks and vehicles. There's a series of holes on the frame of a car and on a hitch that you have to line up to put bolts through. And it's a very sharp point, and it's a steel, heavy-duty bar that's probably two feet in length, and that is sticking entirely through the head of Peggy's skull. Ultimately, hours into the processing of this, into the evenings, and then maybe even to the next day, underneath... Peggy, they have a rubber mat, uh, an anti-static mat uh, behind the cash register. That's what both of them are on top of. And when Peggy and Keith are removed and they're processing underneath them, that mat is rolled up and inspected and it's got a hole through it. And underneath it is a cement floor and the cement has a chunk of cement that had been chiseled out from that one blow. And I remember at talking to Dr. Clark, because it was very important to me, how many injuries did Peggy have? And the answer was one. She didn't have any blunt force trauma to her head or to any other part of her body. And she had no other injury. The only injury she had was a pry bar that had taken I think the physics of it in a very callous way uh, took a significant amount of force to drive that completely through her head into the ground and chipping concrete. And then the ultimate degradation on top of it is that, um, as I think the evidence bore out and to be true as I speak to you today, that Alvaro was the one that did it, and he was the one that decided to leave that in Peggy's skull. Crime scene investigators pieced together what happened when Alvaro Calambra rained down a terror of vicious beatings that would ultimately take the lives of Peggy Crawford and Keith Christopher. He begins hitting uh, Keith in the head with a ball-peen hammer, and he checks on Keith each time. He does a strike and then methodically bends down to see whether or not there's any sign of life with Keith and then proceeds to the next blow. Peggy had and Keith had their mouths taped 
very thickly. So he had wrapped their mouths, not just once or twice, but dozens of times. After he had stopped um, hitting Keith with the hammer, he had heard Peggy crying. Um, And he said that he goes, don't worry, I'm gonna send you to God. He then takes the pry bar and rams it right into Peggy's head. Ron Dreer was born and raised in Reno, Nevada, and after a lengthy law enforcement career, found himself as a homicide detective with the Reno Police Department. Ron was one of the first on the scene at the U-Haul facility on January 4th of 1994. I remember an officer being there, and I remember walking in there and I said, oh my God, you know, look at this. And then it was, that's the one to myself. I'm not talking out loud at that point. I usually bring a tape recorder when I go on stuff like that. So I don't know if I had that tape recorder with me and walking through that, that initially. I probably wouldn't have had it initially anyway. But when I walk through the back door and I walk through that, um, the back area and I walk out and I see um, Peggy. She's the first one on the floor there behind the counter. She's got her legs. She's hogtied. She's got tape around her mouth. She's got a crowbar sticking out of her skull. Um, um, she, her hands are tied, her feet are tied. And then next to her is uh, Keith Christopher, and he's got his mouth taped, his head is bashed in, and um, yeah, uh, his feet are hog tied, and that's what we see. Pretty gruesome at that point. So that explains the scene to you. It's pretty yeah. gory. And you start thinking, oh, my God, you know, and, and though you can't see their faces because they're down, but it must have been a horrific, horrific thing for them to live through and to, to know that one of them is going to get their head bashed in first or both of them were doing it at the same time. Uh, who knows? Because you don't know that initially. What you're trying to do is protect the scene and getting as much evidence preserved as you can to make sure that everything that we can do is to find the culprits who, or the culprit or whoever killed these people and find out why they treated them so bad. So right off the bat, you know, you think you've got somebody that knew these people. Otherwise, you just don't have robberies like that or you don't have murders like that unless there's some kind of hatred there because it looked like whoever did that really hated these people. Dreer's time on the scene wouldn't last long but that day would be burned into his memory for other reasons. It was a horrific scene. We were busy you know, securing the scene, protecting the crime scene, getting our forensics people in, doing all that. And about three or four hours into the, the murder, I got a, a phone call from my, my, my older brother, and who told me that my father was missing and that, um, they found a suicide note and that uh, things are not looking good. So at that point, it, that's when I leave the U-Haul murders and go and respond over to California where my father was found um, several hours later. And that's where I went that day. So it's not a pleasant day. Ron Dreer's partner and fellow homicide detective Dave Jenkins had been on the job for about 18 years in 1994, and he was also one of the first to the crime scene. Can you recount for us 
the the images of what you personally saw when you walked into that U-Haul office building? Well, uh, this was a particularly brutal uh, robbery and homicide, uh, double homicide. Uh, the victims, uh, one female, uh, a middle-aged female and a younger male, uh, had been placed on the floor. Um, they had been uh, bound with ligatures, restrained, and then bludgeoned. Uh, and then there was also evidence that a robbery had occurred. Uh, money was missing from the business. Uh, there was an indication that some parts of the business had been rifled through the cash register and uh, the areas in the business where money had been kept uh, had all been gone through and money was missing. Alvaro Calambro and Duck Wynn murdered Peggy Crawford and Keith Christopher for $2,435. How would this scene at this time in your career and being in the homicide unit compare to um, the other homicides that you had seen at this point? This was in the, the method of death, perhaps... Um, separated only by its gruesomeness and the protracted period of time. Um, sometimes the infliction of a single gunshot wound might appear a little more sanitary, uh, a little quicker, uh, would certainly involve a lot less suffering by the victim. Uh, so in that respect, this was certainly very, very ugly. Uh, in fact, I don't know that I for many cases that would be uh, more gruesome than this one. David Stanton had a theory on why Alvaro and Duck went from car thieves to killers. Duck hated Peggy, and he wanted her to be hurt and injured, killed for sure, or at least possibly. But hurt or injured, probably part of it. I mean, who knew Alvaro and what he was capable of better than Duck? There would be no person other than Leah. And so, it was presented that after they were duck-tied, Duck turns to Alvaro and says, um, do what you want to her, but leave the kid alone. Um, but Duck believed that he didn't have any gripe against Keith, and therefore he didn't want Keith hurt. That doesn't make much sense to me, because he could identify both of them. And so I don't think that they were going to leave anybody alive in that Alvaro and Duck did nothing to conceal their identities that day. No masks, no disguises. But Alvaro did do something to try and throw detectives off. He purchased a pair of shoes that were too big for him in the hopes of confusing the investigation. But that didn't work. Detective Dave Jenkins zeroed in on Alvaro and Duck early on. Do you remember when Alvaro and Duck got on your radar as being potential suspects? Very early on in the canvas uh, and interviewing of other employees at the U-Haul business, our attention had been called to uh, Duck Wynn, one of the ultimate defendants, uh, as a former employee who had had a personal dispute and in fact had physically slapped uh, the female victim so um, that information led us uh, to look at uh, anyone with a grievance or uh, uh, 
a past problem with the victims is a pretty routine part of any homicide investigation. And so uh, they were on our list of potential people to contact. Uh, when I say they, I really mean Duck Wynn at that point in time because we didn't know about uh, Alvaro Colombro until we started uh, investigating Duck Wynn. Once we began pursuing that lead, um, things began to unfold very, very quickly. And unfold they did in ways that no one could begin to imagine. On the next episode... Duck and Alvaro pull out their guns, screaming to get on the fucking ground. The terror streak of the miscreants continues. Then there's a shootout, a significant shootout in the parking lot of TNL Guns in broad daylight that makes the news all over Reno. But will authorities capture them before they can kill again? When they say, look, we have your address, we know where you live, If you call the police, we're going to go to your house and we're going to kill your whole family. 